I'm actually here. So, so, you know, I have one job at this time of day. It's actually show up right here when, uh, when that bump ends. So I, I missed that last week. Some of you noticed that. And uh, wow, it was, a, it was a mess. And then I was trapped in the maze back there. I had a hard time getting out. And actually, last Sunday was the first Sunday that we, we live stream all the time. But last Sunday was the first Sunday that we actually Facebook lived our service, and we only do that second hour. We live stream all three services, but uh, we're doing that, and that's how we started off, blank, you know, so, all right, well, we'll try to get over that, but we are in a series called Exiles, and we are looking at uh, the book of First Peter, and if you haven't been here the last two Sundays, I'd like to set some of the context for you, and that is that Peter is writing this book in the first century, and the Christians, this is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and Christianity has spread all the way to Rome, and people are dying for their faith. And so many of the, the, those first believers in that first century, they had to be thinking, whoa, here, here I'm putting my faith in the Son of the God of the universe, and because of that, I'm being persecuted. But God's in control of all things, so how is he allowing these bad things to happen? Even, not just bad things, but bad things are happening because I've become a Christian. And so they're struggling with this. They, they have all these issues. Nero is in Rome. He's putting Christians to death in the most gruesome way. Zach talked about that a couple weeks ago. And he, he's a, a little bit of a nut job, and he's just... He's doing some crazy things. He blames a fire in Rome on the Christians, and he's coming up with very inventive and cruel ways to kill Christians. And, uh, and all this is happening as Christianity has spread around, and Christians have these questions. And now Peter writes a book, and it's meant to be spread around to the different churches uh, around the area. So it's a, a book from Peter. It's a general book. It's passed around from church to church. And basically, what he's going to emphasize here that I want to notice is he's uniting them. He's, he's emphasizing that they need to be united as a church, that they should stand together. He's going to explain that. And as he does that, he doesn't use the word church, but really he's writing uh, some of these truths collectively so that we will see our point, our place as we come together. And so we are in 1 Peter chapter 2. We left off with verse 3 last time. We'll pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one from the chair rack in front of you. The page number is actually 1212. 1212 is where we're at, 1 Peter chapter 2. But before we get there, um, this whole concept of the church is different than how most people think today. And actually, it was true of me. When I was a teenager, after I became a believer in southern Colorado, I, uh, I, I really felt that I didn't need church because we always emphasize that we have this personal relationship with God, and, and that's correct. But sometimes we overemphasize it to the point where, and that's what I was doing, that, hey, I have God, and so I don't need anybody else, and I don't need the church. I mean, I know the church is God's idea, but I don't really need that to thrive as a believer. But a friend of mine actually confronted me on that, and eventually I came to realize that she was right, and I was wrong. I, I hated to, to admit that, but she was right, I was wrong. 
And it really changed my view of the church in general. So from then on, I really decided that I needed to be a part of the church. Never dreamed of being a pastor or anything, but actually decided that I would go on to at least one year of Bible college just so I can volunteer in the church. I mean, that's, that's kind of just the way I was thinking. But the early church, we know, they met together in Jerusalem first after the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. They met together and then they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. And we know that Jesus died for the church. He launched the church. He instituted the church. And he instructed believers to be meeting together. And he, he said that as we meet together, we're to, to love one another, encourage one another, serve one another, instruct each other, help each other, that we're to do these things. And then he gave us a couple of ordinances, which was communion and baptism. And he said, basically, you're to do these as a church as well. And actually, we're going to be doing communion in a a couple weeks. We'll be doing it on Sunday morning. And then baptism, I think, in three weeks uh, will be coming up. And he's saying that if we've become believers, we should start taking communion regularly at every church trying to figure that out. And then, but also that you are should subject yourself to believers' baptism, and you should do that in a church context, a public profession of your new faith in Christ. And so if you've never done that, as Jess was saying, you should consider that as that's coming up in a few weeks. Now, they didn't have buildings right there at the beginning, but they met together as a whole in the temple courts and then also in in little pockets in homes. And so the church is God's idea, and what I want us to catch this morning is that as God's people, we, if you're a believer today, uh, that we're united in how we are joined together, we are united in who we are together, and we are united in what we do together. All right, so we're going to pick it up. And first of all, united in how we are joined together. Verse 4, 1 Peter chapter 2. And and by the way, in this section of Scripture, for those of you who are new, some words are capitalized, and those capitalized words means that that's a quote from the Old Testament, which was the Bible they had at the time as they were receiving this letter from 1 Peter and pointing that out. That, That means an Old Testament quote. So here we go. It said, Peter says, and coming to him, meaning Christ, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, and I'll throw in another quote here, But for those who disbelieve, 
the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So the first thing he's saying here is that we are being built up in Jesus, that Jesus is the cornerstone, and of course we know that as Jesus is the cornerstone, that we all build our lives on something. And so if Jesus is not our cornerstone, something else is. And that could be a myriad of different things. That could be business success. That could be you know, intellectual capacity. That could be uh, how well you get along with people or your popularity or whatever. It, whatever that is, it cannot hold the weight of your life. Even if you're building your life on your spouse, which is a good thing, but not your spouse as the cornerstone because your spouse is not designed to bear the weight of your entire life and your entire soul, and that will cause your marriage to crumble. So God, he's telling us that we are built, we as believers are built on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, but he's using this figure in a collective sense. He's not just saying our individual lives are being built. He's saying we as a group of believers, which is called a church, as we come together, which is God's idea, God's plan, that we are all integral and we are interrelated and God builds us together to make a spiritual house. When I was a teen, for years, I worked uh, for, for bricklayers. It was a hod carrier, which just means a slave, you know, to a brick carrier. But, uh, but since then, I've learned how to lay brick. And you, this is the image, these stones that you lay one on another and another. They are interjoined together. And God has designed that we would all be built up together in the context of the local church because we're connected by God's design. And that's what we should be experiencing as church. Now, many people uh, today come to church for a lot of different reasons. Some to get get a little bit of teaching. And maybe to other people it's uh, to get some encouragement or, or whatever the reason. But a lot of times people attend church without really becoming fully integrated in church. But that's what God has designed us to do. As a matter of fact, we know from Scripture... That God has designed us, when we become a believer, with a spiritual gift that we use in church to minister to other people. So when we become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes into our life and brings with us some sort of gifting or gift that is to be used inside the context of the church. And when people are just attending and not really being integrated, we don't get the benefit the full benefit of what God intends for us. And then he goes on to say to offer spiritual sacrifices. And we talked about this recently, that we give our lives as a spiritual sacrifice to God. But we do that, we should be doing that in the context, what Peter's writing, in the context of the church as we all come together. Now, as a teenager... In Colorado, my goal 
was to buy a place in the mountains and go live in the mountains around as few people as possible. And I like people, but I just like the mountains. You know, so that, that's what I wanted to do. But then as I grew to love God more and God's people, my church more, as I grew in that love, I realized that we, all of us as, as believers, we are on a mission from God. We've all been assigned to point people to God. And that I couldn't do that living as a hermit up in the mountains enjoying you know, uh, some shed somewhere that I lived in. That, that wasn't really going to work. And so that shifted my thinking. Again, never, never ever thinking I'd be a pastor. But that just shifted my thinking to realize, hey, I needed to be around people because that was God's intention for me. That I would impact people and that I would be a part of a larger collective called the local church. And not only that, that God wanted me to impact people. I knew that I needed to be impacted by God's people. And so realize that's not a good use of my life. And that changed a a little bit the trajectory of of what, what I did with my life. So we are united as believers. And again... This is only for believers here. If you're a believer, we are united in how we've been joined together. We are united in how we have been joined together. And next I want us to see, we're united in who we are together. We're united as believers in the local church. We're united by who we are together. And, and we'll pick that up where we left off in verse 9. First part of verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Uh, we are a chosen race. Uh, yesterday, I was at the rec center and I was talking to a, a kind of a newer friend that I have, not, not a believer, and he was, uh, he's been through some amazing things in his life, but he, he's also in a, a mixed marriage, as it used to be called, and he was telling me you know, what kind of a, some of the, the problems that that caused back when he first got married. And the whole time, he, and some of this I expressed, but the whole time he's thinking and expressing this, I'm thinking to myself, you know, in Christianity, there's no mixed, mixed marriages, Because we are a new race. We are a chosen race. When we become believers, everybody else who's a believer is a believer. We're the same, and it doesn't matter where we come from culturally, racially, socioeconomically. None of that matters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We view that totally different. Although then what kicks in as believers is that we should only marry people who are also have the same values in following God as we do. And some of that I was able to express to him, and we have a good talk, and it's just, uh, you know, good stuff. But chosen race is what Peter is calling each one of us. And, of course, that's language that we hear in the Old Testament a lot about the Jewish people, right? And here Peter is applying that to all believers. Here's how it started in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And no doubt when the Jewish people heard that, they were like, 
Yeah, rock on. I can't believe that. That is cool. We are chosen. We, we are something. God's, he's saying that we've got something going on. He picked us. I mean, you could just hear him saying that. We're really something. You know, why, why, why would God do that? We must be super special. And then the next verse says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Basically, what God's saying, didn't pick you because you were a strong nation. You're actually an insignificant nation. So then they're like, okay, okay, yeah, we're not the biggest nation, but we must have it right. I mean, we must be, we must be the most righteous or the most holy nation. But no, then you continue in Deuteronomy 9 6, he says, No, then, no, then, it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. So here they're like, whoa, we, you know, we can't catch a, catch a break here as God's telling me. I didn't pick you because you're a strong country. You're insignificant. I didn't pick you because you're holy. You're stubborn. By the way, I would not use this line of reasoning when you're talking to your wife about choosing her. This is not a good way to go. You know, hey, honey, yeah, I love you, but I didn't choose you because you're attractive. I didn't choose you because you're intelligent. Actually, you're totally insignificant and basically really stubborn. But, hey, I chose you. You know, don't go there. That's not going to be your best line um, to, to warm up to her. But what he's saying here is, we are a chosen race. And then the next phrase is what? A royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now, priests represent, priests stands, they, they stand as a mediator between God and people. And so they represent God to people and they represent people to God. That's what a priest does. But here, Peter's saying that all of us as believers are actually royal priests, which means we all represent God. So here at Grace, we all represent. So, and that's why people, so many people at Grace take it seriously to come and volunteer to do things because we realize that we want to represent God. We, we want to make it to where people will hear the message. So we have people that will volunteer to, you know, in the summertime to make our grounds nice. So as people pull onto our property, it looks good. We have people greeting at the door. We have people serving coffee, people taking care of, of children, doing people greeting as they come in. You know, all this stuff we're doing to represent God to make sure that they won't turn God off before they even hear the message. And so we rep, because we understand, we want to represent God well by sharing God's truth with other people. So that's what we do. Now, because we know priests, typically human priests, are to represent God to people and people to God, then we understand in Christianity, all believers are priests, so we don't need human priests. Actually, Jesus Christ, the God-man, is our only mediator that we need between us and the Father. And we all, as believers, we all have equal access. So we don't need earthly priests to be the mediator for us because we all have direct access to God through Christ. And that's what Peter is trying to get us to see when he's saying that we're a royal priesthood. We don't need human priests now, for example, to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. God, through Jesus, has already told us that. Our, if we're a believer, our sins are forgiven. We don't deserve it, but our sins are forgiven. So we don't need somebody to, 
to say that to us or make that happen. Now, if you're a believer, that means you and I are both washed in the blood of Christ. And you and I, even though I'm a pastor, we have the exact same access to God through Christ. All believers are priests. But he's saying something even more than that. All believers are priests, but they are also children of the king. We are a royal priesthood. That God has not just given us access. He's given us access as a child of the king. All of us. All believers. That's what he's telling us. And then he says, a holy nation. Remember we talked about holy and how holy... um, Although it has the connotations of morality and everything, but mainly it meant set apart. We're holy. We're set apart. That's how things in the temple could be holy that aren't even people. We are set apart as a people for God's own use. And so in that separation, we've talked about this a few times, that that then we have the balance between assimilation and isolation, remember? So we're separated for God's use, that makes us different. So we're not totally assimilated in the culture where people, you know, we, we look like everybody else. But it's also not isolation where we live in a bubble and we don't impact anybody. It's right in the middle. It's that balance. We're called to be that a holy nation for God. And then, so we're a holy nation of people for God's own possession, it says. And then, then we might get to that why. You know, why is that? That we're, Why? And the, second, the rest of verse 9 answers that. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. He's writing Christians here. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he's... Peter's just reminding us that as believers, we're as guilty as everybody else, but we've received mercy. We used, we, there was a point in time where we didn't, we came, became a Christian by our faith, and now we've received mercy, and now we, as God's people, his own possession, we want to point others so that they also will receive God's mercy that none of us deserve. That's what we do. And then he continues and says, we are aliens and strangers. That begins in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. And that's where we're getting the name of the series, this word aliens. It means exiles. It really means like a permanent resident, a permanent non-citizen resident is kind of a thing. A non-citizen, permanent resident. And so that we belong to another place. And then he calls us strangers. And then again, we have that complex relationship with the world, that we are in the world, but not assimilated, but not of the world. And then for for those who want to isolate, no, we're not out of the world, we're in the world, we're just not, it's that balance between assimilation and isolation in our culture to impact people as we walk that line. So we're united in how we are joined together, we are united in who we are together, and we are united in what we do together. And this is then, uh, verse 12, we'll pick that up. But basically, we become 
a Christian the moment that we put our faith in Christ. The moment we stop trusting our own morality and start trusting in Jesus alone, a matter of faith. And so, if we believe through faith, then sometimes people will ask, well, how do I know if I have enough faith? Or how do I know it's real? Or how do... And, and people will still have questions. Because here's the deal. Because it's counterculture. It's, uh, it's, not what we, it's, it's not intuitive. It's counterintuitive. It's like this. True religion, Christianity, is not about us coming up with a bunch of ways, some system for us to be, become closer to God. True Christianity is that God came down to us through Christ, but there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Because no matter what good works we do, the point is God has created us and given us freedom, and we've all used our freedom to do wrong things. And because God's perfectly just, wrong has to be punished. So God just can't say, eh, you did a bunch of wrong stuff, don't worry about it. I'll forgive you. God is forgiving, but that would not be just. If somebody, if a judge did that to somebody who murdered somebody we loved, we'd say, you can't just forgive this person. They killed my spouse or my child or whatever. So because God's just, he can't just wink at sin or just excuse sin. It has to be punished. But in God's love for us, he sends Jesus his son, eternally, who comes and voluntarily, first of all, he lives a life and commits no sin, which is key, which then makes him the only one qualified to pay for somebody else's sin. And then he voluntarily gives up his life in payment for our sin. And then the way we get that is through faith or trust, by putting our faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, realizing that there's Nothing we can do morally to earn God's favor. It's all through Christ. But now, when that happens, when people ask, well, how do I know then, since I'm not doing it, it's just faith. How do I know I have enough faith? How do I know I've crossed the line? Well, because then, once you've put your life into him, once you've trusted in Jesus alone, God comes into your life through the Holy Spirit, and in gratitude, you will have a desire to follow God. You'll have a desire to do what God wants you to do. You won't do that perfectly, but you'll at least want to follow God because of his love for you. It'll just kind of overwhelm you. So we have, a follow, we have this desire to follow Jesus, and now that's what Peter kind of swings to next in the second half of verse 11 and verse 12. He says, so here's what you're to do. First he says, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, in this context, among non-believers, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation, in the future. So two things here that he's talking about. First, we abstain from fleshly lusts. And I know that sounds real sexual, but, but it's actually not. What he's talking about is abstaining from even the fleshly part, fleshly desires. And this is a word that we've talked about before. It's epithumeo, 
And this word is talking about an over-desire, when we desire too much. So first of all, we know that when we have right and wrong, that sin causes, the first thing sin causes us to do is want to rebel. I used the illustration before that we have a level three snow emergency. I'm warm. I'm home with my wife, enjoying my nice warm house. And then they come on the news and say, this is a level three emergency. You cannot leave your house. And then what do I want to do? Leave. I mean, I want out of there. I'm like a KGM. Get me and I know some of you are the same way. Admit it right now. Yeah, some of you are saying, we want out of there. Just because they said we couldn't, we want out. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about something much deeper. Peter's saying, yeah, sin can cause us to do that. But even worse for sin, that's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not the forbidden fruit. Our biggest problem is when we desire things too much. Now, we shouldn't desire wrong things, but this over-desire is primarily referring to even good things. So we over-desire even things that God says is good. That messes up our relationship with God because we can over-desire other things to where we put those things or people or whatever it is in the place of God in our life. And we, when we put those things in the center of our life, when we put those things in the place of God in our life, those things cannot bear the weight of our life and our soul. They can't do it. And that will stop us from growing closer to God. It will stop us from serving God effectively. It will stop us from giving. It will stop us from just every good thing that God wants for us. We have to keep God. And it won't be just that our relationship with God is frozen. Because of the nature of sin, it will grow and grow in our lives. And the more and more we want something else in the center of our lives, the more and more we marginalize God in our life. So that's what he's saying. This uh, desire, these fleshly lusts is really, it's don't over-desire things in your life. That's what we have to fight against. That's what we have to abstain from. Making other things besides God too important in our life. And it happens all the time. It could be our family, good things. Things that we should want to desire, but not over-desire. A spouse, a family, our children. There's the danger that we over-desire by putting those things at the center of our life or ahead of God. When we do that, it leads us the wrong way. It hurts us spiritually. They cannot take the place of God in our lives. They're not designed to stand up under that kind of weight. And sometimes we see this working itself out in the culture we live in. For, you know, Maybe we can all just imagine kind of the kid at school that has no friends you know, maybe it's elementary school or junior high and this, this student just has no friends and desperately wants friends. And so then every time there's kind of a chance at friendship, he grabs on or she grabs on so tightly, the, the, the new friends or the new acquaintances are like, whoa, 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 what's going on? It's sort of a self-defeating prophecy. It's like, I want it so bad that it doesn't happen. Or, you know, sometimes with young people, it's marriage. You know, maybe the guy or the lady, they, they want marriage so bad, they want to be married so bad that when they go out on a date or meet somebody, 
all of a sudden that just kind of dominates everything and, and the other person kind of catches that and it's just sort of out of context. It's, it's uh, out of order and, and it, it makes people kind of back off a little bit. We can want things too much and even our wanting of it sometimes is a hindrance to us even experiencing the good of those things. But much deeper than that is when we want things too much a lot of times we're putting those in the place of God in our life and that will never work for us. And if it's a person, it will never work for them either. That's what he's saying. Remember Jesus said, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world but forfeit your own soul? And then he's saying, hey, not only abstain from these over-desires, he's saying uh, basically that we need to live a life of doing good that speaks louder than the slander against us as believers. So, first of all, Peter's telling us, if you're a Christian, if you've become a Christian, that will change your life. Your life will eventually change from the inside out. And when that happens, some people will be repelled by that, Non-believers, and some non-believers will be attracted to that. But he's telling us that we as believers should expect slander. We should expect to be criticized. We should expect that some people don't like the stand that we're taking. And so as believers, we're also trying to do good that, that the world sees. And so when we're being slandered, that the good they see us doing counteracts the slander. Hopefully speaks louder than a slander. I actually shared a long story last time about that, but I'm not going to do that just for the sake of time. But the point is, we interact with the world in such a way that we want to do good to counteract the slander that we know we're going to experience. But doing good is not the mission. The mission is to point people to God. We do good while we do the mission. But doing good can't become the mission. Or then we won't be doing what God's told us to do. Doing good is what we do along the way of accomplishing our mission to point people to God and glorify Him. And we see this all the time. That means as we live our lives, uh, there's things that can rile us up. And there, there'll be cultural things that as we walk this line between assimilation and isolation that will, you know, bother us. For example, you know, we had the whole abortion thing, right? That, that New York passed that Reproductive Health, you know, Right Act, which is horrific. That allows abortion right up to the birth of the child. When everyone knows that baby, everyone knows that baby, that she can survive outside the mother. But abortion is totally, there's no barriers on that, no matter how late the abortion is. So, obviously, as Christians, we, we stand up for those most vulnerable in our culture, and the unborn falls into that category. So, we are pro-life. We want, we want to help these babies. But here's the thing. We also want to help these mothers, and so we want to stand for what God says is right, but we also want to do that in a loving way. That's why we partner, for example, with Heartbeat Hope Medical, and we're so involved in that. As a matter of fact, a bunch of our people super involved in that, Lisa Idris, 
um, Marissa, Moya, uh, Nadine. I mean, we just have a bunch of people in our church, uh, Barb, uh, Collier, uh, Diane Canote. Just We have a bunch of people that are involved that are doing that because they're putting their service and their money and their mouth where our beliefs are. And, and so we support them as a church, but we also support them with all the people that are involved because we want to do good. We want to love children, but we want to love the mothers and offer them help and counseling and however we can help them. That's what we're called to do. The, the point is, we do life as we go with God's plan, His purpose, His mission for us. We do good along the way because we expect to be slandered. So what are we saying? That, that we can only do this as we come together and we're unified as a church. So we need to commit to being interdependent, to being together, to being involved in what we do because that's God's intention. And now I know not everyone here is a believer, and this is a passage of Scripture where basically Peter's you know, writing to believers, but he mentions unbelievers too, that we just have this one life in order to trust Christ, and that, that it's exclusive. Christ is the only way, but it, it's the most inclusive belief in the world because all are invited to come, no matter who you are or what you've done. But we need to be committed as a church family to do life together in community. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your marvelous light that you have given us, the grace that you have showered onto us that we do not deserve. And God, that you've given us meaning, purpose, Lord, that we would point others to you. Lord, help us to do that better and better. And we do that as individuals, but Lord, your plan is that we do that interconnected as a church family, as we are stones fitted together, built together as your spiritual house. And God, I pray that you'd help us who are believers to commit to that. And Father, we pray that for those here who are not believers, who have not trusted in Christ alone, who somehow either don't know anything about this or they've confused uh, church membership or baptism or works with having a relationship with you. Father, we pray that you draw them to yourself and again, help us to be the church that you want us to be in Christ's name. Amen.